But today, we're going to look at a passage from Mark chapter 12. And I think it's an especially appropriate passage, given that tomorrow is the 4th of July, that it's Independence Day, and because we live in a community that is so profoundly influenced by the military. It's also a timely passage, because as we seek to enjoy and follow Jesus Christ, we do so in the context of a nation. And in the context of a nation whose underpinnings are becoming less and less attached to Christ and his gospel. So for people who know Jesus Christ and who seek to follow him, we have to understand that we are people who live between two worlds. We live between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, and we also live as residents of the kingdom of this world. And this passage helps us to navigate those waters before us this morning. So with that in view, I want to take a moment to read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and invite you to follow along with me. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. I've been asked by several people what I would do for a living if I were not a minister. What would I do? And I inevitably respond that I would want to be a broadcast journalist. I would want to be a news anchor man of all things. Could you imagine that? A, a, a prematurely balding man as a news anchor man. But that's what I would like to be. It's one of the things that I love. I, I have two great loves in life. I love to talk about religion and I love to talk about politics. The two things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Those are my two things. And the Lord called me into ministry, but if I were not doing that, I would love to be a journalist. And I actually dabbled in it for a while when I was a student at the University of Arizona. I wrote for the, daily, uh, the Arizona Daily Wildcat, which was our daily college newspaper. And one of the, my most favorite stories that I got to cover was the 1996 presidential election between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. And on election night that year, the editor of our paper sent me to cover the Republican not-so-much-of-a-victory party that particular year. And I was there with all of these different people following the election returns, and I found myself eavesdropping on a conversation between two men. And one of the men said, you know, one of the things that I don't understand about Jesus is that he never really said much about politics. I found that to be a somewhat interesting comment. had to think about it for a while. Because on the one hand, he was right. Jesus really didn't say a whole lot about the civil government, about politics and so forth. He, he didn't tell us how to vote. He never even commanded us to vote. And he didn't lay an outline for us about all of the big social and political issues of the day. 
He didn't even outline a particular type of government that we ought to have. And so Jesus' words, as you explore the Gospels, are somewhat vague when it comes to the issue of the civil government and politics and how we live in that particular society. But on the other hand, Jesus was not silent on the issue. And if there was ever a passage in the Gospels where we find that Jesus makes a very clear statement about it, it's this particular passage where he's interacting with the Pharisees and the Herodians and he says to them that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. The context of this passage is in the last week of Jesus' life. We're just a couple days before the crucifixion here. And Jesus had been teaching in the temple. And when Jesus had finished teaching in the temple, the people didn't file out and smile and shake Jesus' hand and rush off as fast as they could so they could beat the Baptist to the local buffet. That's not what they did. They stuck around afterwards and they peppered him with questions. And there were two groups there, two groups that really didn't get along with each other, didn't see eye to eye, and didn't like each other at all, who came to, them, came to him and asked him a very poignant question. And one of the groups was the Pharisees. You're probably somewhat familiar with them. They were the political and religious conservatives of the day. They were part of the religious right. And they were very concerned about the influx of Greco-Roman culture coming into the Judaism of that day. They were the culture warriors who were, who were uh, trying to resist the liberalism that was coming in. And so one of the ways in which they sought to resist that was by developing extra-biblical traditions and extra-biblical rules that they attached to the Bible as having the same kind of authority. So they were way on the right. And uh, the other group that was involved here, along with the Pharisees, were the Herodians. And the Herodians were much, much more liberal. They had sympathies to Herod, King Herod, who was the puppet king in Israel at this time. They weren't particularly religious people, and they were much, much more accommodating to the liberalism of Greco-Roman culture that was making its way into Israel in this particular day. So you have the equivalent of Republicans and Democrats, two people who really don't care much for each other at all and don't see the world the same way and don't have the same underpinnings and ethos whatsoever, they didn't agree on much of anything, but they did agree on one thing. And that one thing that they agreed upon was that they had to get rid of Jesus somehow. And so they sought to trap Jesus. And they trapped him by asking him a question about tax law of all things. How's that for a riveting topic to explore? That's what they wanted to know. They wanted to know whether a person who claims to love God and to follow God and to worship God is someone who ought to pay taxes to a secular, godless government. In other words, can you pledge allegiance to a government that is godless and corrupt while still remaining faithful to God? And there's really not a slam-dunk answer to this question. It's a, it's a tough question. It's a, it's a question they were asking. It wasn't even a question that they were asking out of a genuine desire to know the answer. It was a question that they were asking to pin Jesus into the corner. And so Jesus here is faced with a difficult question because he says if we should pay taxes to Caesar, then it would appear that we are validating Caesar as the messianic deity that he wanted to be understood as. The coins of the day, the denarius that Jesus asked to see, had 
an, an inscription and an image on there that would make people believe that Caesar was this sort of God, that he did command complete, absolute authority over his people. And so if Jesus says that we ought to pay taxes to Caesar, it would give the appearance that, we would, that, that his entire message would be invalidated, that we are being called to embrace idolatry, that we are being called to support the very government that oppressed these people and to bow the knee to Caesar rather than to God. That's what it would appear to be. But on the other hand, if Jesus says that we're not to pay taxes to Caesar, then he appears to be an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, someone who's preaching to his people some sort of insubordination to the government. And so there's no simple yes or no answer to this question, even though that's what the questioners were hoping to get out of him. So Jesus refuses to be backed into a corner. He actually asks to see the coin. And he asks, whose likeness and inscription is this? And in verse 16 you say that they said to him, Caesar's. And so Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. It is a profound religious and political statement. Because in saying that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, what Jesus is doing is he is legitimizing a very corrupt and very godless government. He's saying that the government has a legitimate, God-given authority. He's establishing that. And because that's the case, people who claim to follow Christ are people who ought to submit to it. We're to submit to our government as long as it's not calling us to do things that God forbids or forbidding us that God is commanding us to do. We're called to submit to it. And that's exactly the line of thinking that Paul has when he calls us to submit to the governing authorities in Romans chapter 13 and also that Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 2. So in other words, what Jesus wants us to see here, my friends, and this is absolutely vital that you understand this, what Jesus wants us to see here is that we are simultaneously citizens of two kingdoms. We have a dual citizenship, so to speak. We are members of the kingdom of this world, of the city of man, as Augustine called it, and we live under the authority of a human government that God has ordained. That's true on the one hand. On the other hand, we're ultimately citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom not of this world, whose Builder and architect is actually God himself. And so what Jesus wants us to see here as 21st century Americans, what he wants us to consider is how we are to render our lives over to God, as is commanded in this particular passage, while at the same time honoring and respecting and fulfilling the privileges and responsibilities that we have as citizens of this particular country. What does it mean for a Christian to honor his or her country without capitulating to its evils? What does it mean for a Christian to respect his country while remembering that our fundamental allegiance is to God and to God alone? Well, I think for one thing, it's important to understand that in this passage, Jesus is establishing a healthy distinction between the church and the state. Yes, you heard it here first. There is a distinction that Jesus is establishing here between the church and the state. In the Old Testament, you didn't see that. In the Old Testament, you saw somewhat of a fusion between the church and the state. 
There, there was little distinction whatsoever in the Old Testament between Israel as a nation and Israel as the covenant community of God's people, the, the church, so to speak. They, they, they were one and the same, the same laws that governed the people in a religious sense also governed them in a political sense. So there was a theocracy involved there. But in the New Testament, you start to see something a little bit different. You see that God rules and governs his people through the governance and the ministry of the church. Through the word of God being brought to bear upon the people of God and transforming their lives from the inside out. Through things like we're going to do today, celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's how God does that, how God builds his church now. And so the civil government has no authority to bind the conscience and the actions of the church in her ministry or her work. And at the same time, the church has no authority over the state to criminalize doctrinal error or moral error, even though it might be disciplined within the church. But I should say this as well. Even though Jesus is establishing a distinction between the church and the state here, he is not calling us in any respect to check our faith at the door the moment that we enter into the secular world. Because how we live in every sphere of our life ought to be informed by who we are in Jesus Christ. It ought to be informed by the fact that we have, when we receive Him through faith, that we've been declared forgiven and been declared righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ for us in the Gospel. How we live and how we engage as political beings ought to be flavored by Jesus Christ and not simply by cultural trends or what our favorite talk radio show hosts has to say. It ought to be flavored by Christ. How we conduct ourselves in our daily work and in our home life and all the spheres of our life is to be flavored with Jesus Christ. If the gospel, my friends, is not affecting how you live as a citizen of this world, if, if what we do here on Sunday mornings, the worship here on Sunday mornings does not affect how you live at the office on Tuesday afternoon or how you live at home on Wednesday evening, then there's a fundamental disconnect between what you say you believe and how you're living. Jesus isn't calling us to live in that way. So we don't jettison our identity in Christ the moment we leave this building. But at the same time, my friends, we should not expect that America as a political entity, is going to adopt the gospel principles that we see in Scripture. In other words, we should not be surprised that unbelievers live and act and believe like unbelievers. That should not be shocking to us. And we should not expect the church to Christianize America through certain legislation, through things like that. People do not come to believe the gospel and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ because biblical principles become the law of the land. As important as it is to elect the right people to office, to see certain laws passed and other ones turned down, as important as it is to defend our country against those who would seek to undermine it, that is not the most important of God's priorities for our lives and for the church. And they are not the way that people come to believe in Christ and grow in Him. People come to believe in Christ and grow in Him through something very, very ordinary. They come to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ as the Word begins to saturate their souls, as it's read and as it's preached and as the the Holy Spirit applies it and applies Jesus Christ to the hearts of of people. 
And friends, that ought to color the way in which we understand ourselves not only as people who belong to Christ, but also as citizens of the United States of America. The the church and its worship and its work do not belong to Caesar. It doesn't belong to America. It's the 4th of July tomorrow, and that's, that's something that we ought to celebrate. In fact, we're doing that, and we hope that you can come to that tomorrow afternoon. It, it, it's a time for patriotic singing and flag-waving. It's a wonderful thing, and I'm thankful for it. it. It's something that we have very good reason to celebrate. But it's not for the worship of the church. It's not for our gathered worship together. As much as we should pray for our leaders, and as we're commanded to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as much as we should pray that justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, as we see in Amos chapter 5, and as much as it is really good and wise to celebrate the freedoms that we have as people who live in the United States of America, celebrating America in the context of our gathered corporate worship together is at best inappropriate, and at worst it's just flat-out idolatry. We don't honor America in our gathered worship together because the one that we've come to worship and the one that we've come to honor is God and God alone. The God of all the nations. The God who's come to redeem His people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. In place after place in Scripture, one of the things that you see, and it's a beautiful thing that you see, is that He has come to redeem a church that is transcultural, transnational, You can be from any country, any culture, any background. You can worship Jesus Christ. That's what heaven is going to be like. And we long for that. Worship here on earth ought to reflect something of the worship of heaven, shouldn't it? Because in the worship of heaven, we're going to be gathered together as brothers and sisters. We're not going to be there to espouse our national pride or our culture's virtues. We're going to be there to exalt Christ and to delight ourselves in Him. It's important for us to be mindful of that. But I need to say this as well. As people who are citizens of heaven, we can, and we very well should, be thankful to be citizens of this particular country, of the place that God has in His providence planted us. And that thankfulness ought to manifest itself in rendering over to Caesar what is Caesar's. And by that, I mean that it is good to appreciate the liberties and the unique freedoms that we have as Christians happening to to live here. We can celebrate the fourth, sing God bless America, and be thankful that in His providence and in His grace, He has allowed us to enjoy something that looks like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Christians ought to be the greatest citizens in the world because we have a theology that calls us to render over to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And by that it means that we pay our taxes and we respect the laws of the land. And when we find the laws to be wrong, we seek to change them through lawful ways. We can disagree with our leaders and we might have very, very good reason to do so, but we don't speak of them in the ways that we find the talking heads on the news stations talking of them. Our, our speech is seasoned with salt and it's never dehumanizing, however critical it may be. Rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's means that the civil government is a legitimate institution 
despite how corrupt it may be. If that's not what Jesus was getting at here, if he was saying that we could have no earthly authority if we were to have him as our authority, he wouldn't have commanded us to pay our taxes to Caesar, to the very government that would persecute the church and even have Jesus crucified. And so because that's the case, we as people who follow Jesus Christ can be people who are active politically, who serve in the armed forces, who serve our nation and our state in all types of avenues of public service. In fact, I pray that more and more would. One of the things I long to see and I hope to see and I pray to see in this church is that children would grow up out of this congregation to become adults who would be ministers and missionaries. But I also want to see some of them become soldiers and politicians and people engaged in society in all different types of levels so that America becomes a better place to live. Part of what it means as people who have been so deeply loved by Jesus Christ, who have been recipients of a grace that frees us from hell and frees us to, to be part of the kingdom of heaven, what that allows us to do is actually to love our neighbors. And part of what it means to render the things unto Caesar that are Caesar's means that we're going to be law-abiding engaged citizens of this particular country who seek to serve our American neighbors in ways that are reflective of our, of our identity in Christ. But because our ultimate allegiance is to God and is to His kingdom, we're always going to be people who ruffle the feathers of the world. Because what the gospel does is it is subversive in many respects. The image on a coin may be Caesar's or Washington's or Lincoln's or, or Jackson's, but the image that you and I have on ourselves is the image of God. It's ensconced on our very being. And because that's the case, we live as if we fundamentally belong to Him. We're created by Him and for Him and in His image and for His glory, and that's how we live. And because that's the case, the authority of the state never, never usurps the authority of God. The values of Caesar's world and the values of the city of God are completely different from one another. And because that's the case, we're going to end up ruffling the feathers of the world in some respect. I don't have the time or the expertise to give you a Christian perspective, so to speak, on what it means to practice law or to conduct your business or to, to teach high school students or whatever it is that you do. But I do know that in our ordinary lives, our ordinary occupations and responsibilities, that rendering over our lives to God means that we're going to have a spirit-filled flavor to our lives. It's going to overflow. We're going to produce spiritual fruit in the midst of those ordinary responsibilities. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that's going to be spilling out of our lives. You and I are called to live a very extravagant Christian life. Not this mediocre, half-hearted thing, but an extravagant Christian life in our very average, very day-to-day -day ordinary context. We're called to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ and live a life reflective of that trust in all of the spheres of our lives. A life of faith 
and dependence upon Christ and His Gospel is a life that looks like that. It looks like that in the midst of a world that's hostile and unbelieving. Rendering to God the things that are God's means that while we may care very, very much about the health of America, we're going to care much, much more about the health of the church. Rendering over to God the things that are God's means that while we may sacrifice and give our time and our gifts and our resources over for the well-being of our nation, we're going to be even more inclined to give our time and our gifts and our resources over to God and to the well-being of His people. Rendering over to God the things that are God's means that we discover that all of our life matters to God. God matters to all of our work and all of our work matters to God. His image isn't on a coin, it's on your soul. That means that you live with integrity in the way in which you work. It means that you respect the laws of the country in which you live. It means that the way you spend your time and your money, how you raise your children and how you honor your parents and how you live as a husband or a wife is something you do fundamentally for His glory because you're rendering over your life to a God who loved you and gave Himself for you. Let me just say this last thing and then I'll be done. You know, the United States may or may not remain true to its motto, e pluribus unum, out of many one. But we can know for certain that red and yellow, black and white, people from every nation under heaven will be coming to worship the true and living God in His kingdom. The United States, it it may or may not exist as we know it in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years from now, but God's kingdom is forever. Our, Our government may or may not protect us from foreign and domestic enemies, but we know that God has come to save His people and protect us and deliver us from the power of the evil one who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The United States may or may not be the land of the free and the home of the brave in so many years from now, but we know for certain that Jesus Christ bravely endured the cross, scorning its shame to set our imprisoned souls free from the bondage of sin and set us free to glorify and enjoy Him forever. And friends, when that amazing grace starts to saturate your soul, that kind of rendering to God over the things that are God's moves from being a burdensome duty to being a wonderful delight. That's my prayer for all of us this morning. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank You for Your Word. A Word that's challenging and difficult to hear. Challenging to see how we might navigate the course of this life in a world that's hostile to You, but in a world that You have placed us. We pray that as we plumb the depths of Your Word and as Your Holy Spirit impresses it upon our lives, that we would live as honorable citizens in this nation, but most importantly, that we would live as become citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven, as children who have been adopted by You, as people who have Your image impressed upon our souls. 
We pray that you would do that for the sake of your glory. And we ask this all in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.